begin this morning by reading a little bit of news. Monday, 7th November 2005. Paul Dyson pleads guilty to murdering his girlfriend, Joanne Nelson, last Valentine's Day. Tuesday, 8th November. A lawyer for one of Saddam Hussein's co-defendants was shot dead when a gunman opened fire on his car in Baghdad. Wednesday, 9th. Approximately 60 people were killed in a series of bomb blasts at three hotels in the country of Jordan. Thursday, 10th November. More than 30 people were murdered following a suicide bombing in a restaurant in the Iraqi capital. Friday, 11th November, Remembrance Day. Three teenagers were arrested in Surrey following an attack on a 15-year-old girl, Natasha Jackman. Natasha was stabbed in the eye and head with scissors, though thankfully she survived. Saturday 12th, yesterday, five people were killed in a car bomb, once again in the country of Iraq. Now if all this is not enough murder on the menu, and that was just a selection of things that I could have picked from, then there is also the whole realm of fictional murder, as we either read a whodunit or we watch one on the television. In a little bit of research this week, I discovered that between just Tuesday and today, you could have watched no less than 24 murder dramas on channels 1 to 5. And yet despite this greater exposure to murder, it seems that we are becoming more and more numb to the subject. Murder has become something of a voyeuristic topic. And we watch on as it affects other people, never thinking that it will affect ourselves. And of course, we may be right. As a matter of fact, murder in Scotland, at least, is relatively rare. In 2003, just uh, 108 homicides, or 21 per 1 million people. If you live in Edinburgh, then things are even better, because 68 of those homicides took place in the Strathclyde Police Region. And therefore, as we continue our series today in the Ten Commandments, those instructions given by God to Israel thousands of years past, it is both possible and probable that we approach the Sixth Commandment with a degree of casualness. For we do not think that you shall not murder is a command which directly applies to us. But if that is what we think, then this morning we are in for an awakening. For we will find that as God is concerned, so we too should be concerned for the sanctity of human life. Now today we'll be looking at different parts of the Bible but it would probably be helpful to have our Bibles open, first of all, at Exodus 20, where this command is found in the seventh verse. There are two Bibles, and it's on page 78 in those. 
When I was a young boy, I had a number of favorite places that I liked to hang out with my friends uh, nearby my house, but uh, far enough away so that my parents couldn't see what we were doing. And uh, thankfully, there was one particular place that we were never stupid enough to go. It was a local power grid, and uh, it was partially enclosed. It had a high fence, though I think you could have scaled it if you'd taken the bother. We didn't bother because the sign on the front read, Danger of death, keep out. It nearly scared us to death, so we never tried it. And similar this morning, I want to sound two notes of caution as we approach the sixth commandment. Two words of warning that say, as it were, beware, tread carefully. And the first of these is very simply that life is sacred. Life is sacred. You see, on the surface of it, this command seems to deal with death, not life. Indeed, a particular form of death, namely murder. But the reason the command was given was out of a desire to uphold life and to protect life. We see this in the very form of the command itself. Just four words in Exodus 20:13, which the NIV translates, you shall not murder. In fact, in Hebrew, the original language, it's just two words. No murder. And that seems straightforward enough, doesn't it? But yet many people who faithfully read their Bible are immediately puzzled. Perhaps especially if they're familiar with the traditional rendering, thou shalt not kill. And uh, they're aware, because they know the rest of their Bibles, that much of it includes just that. With a fair chunk of the killing being sanctioned by God himself. So how do we figure that out? Uh, Which is it they ask to kill or not to kill? Indeed, is there a contradiction between the command itself and the actions of God himself? Well, in this instance, everything comes down to the particular labelling. When you go to the supermarkets these days, you tend to be spoiled for choice, don't you? The days when you could only buy one type of cola and one type of butter, say, are gone. And now there are 50 types of bread and you need to peruse the label carefully to see what are the distinctive features. And similarly, we must understand that this is a very distinctive, very particular label which God places on this command. You see, there were eight different words in Hebrew for killing. And this particular word was the term rasa, only used 40 times in the Old Testament, and significantly always with respect to human beings, never of killing animals. So, what did rasa mean? What was included in the term? Well, certainly it included premeditated murder. If you look just across the page to Exodus 21, Verse 13, we read this. If a man schemes and kills another deliberately, take him away from my altar and put him to death. And the word for kill there is the word rasa. So that God is outlawing personal, 
premeditated killing, what we would call murder. All the stuff that makes it to the top of the news bulletins. And indeed it is a form of death which has been around since the very genesis of man. It's very notable, though tragic, that both the Old Testament and the New Testament begin almost immediately with accounts of murder. In Genesis 4, with two brothers, Cain the eldest, the jealous, who plots and then smites his brother Abel. Or in Matthew 2, where we read of the so-called slaughter of innocents, the mass murder of children at the hands of an insecure king. And God says simply that this is wrong. However, there were other types of killing which were excluded from this particular commandment. We could say that all murder is killing, of course, but not all killing is murder in a biblical sense. So, for example, accidental killing, in which case there was a provision made. So, in Exodus 21, verses tw- verse 12, we read that anyone who strikes a man and kills him shall surely be put to death. However, if he does it unintentionally, but God lets it happen, he is to flee to a place I will designate. And God set up what were known as cities of refuge. Places where the one who had killed accidentally could flee and find protection while the case was being investigated. Nevertheless, even if they were acquitted, they didn't get off scot-free. You see, there was a point being underscored here. That for all the accidental nature of the killing, nevertheless, the unauthorized taking of life was a very serious matter. And so by law, they would have to remain within the city until the death of the high priest. Could have been next week. Could have been a lifetime. And you see, this rationale of the preciousness of life lies behind all the other exceptions. So, self-defense. You're sleeping in your bed. You're woken by an intruder. And you strike them and you kill them. And in that event, you would not be guilty of murder. Why? Because life is cheap? No, but because life is precious. You are protecting your own life and protecting the life of your household. The similar rationale lay behind war in the Old Testament. Of course, just 40 years after these commands were given, Israel were commanded by God to invade the promised land, the land of Canaan. A unique conquest. But during the normal state of affairs, as we see later in the Old Testament, Israel were permitted to defend their own borders. And once more, the underlying principle was the protection of life, the protection of its citizens. For the same reason, there was finally an exclusion for capital punishment. The word rasa or murder is never used of capital punishment or war in the Old Testament. And in order to uphold justice and to deter others from evil, perpetrators would themselves be put to death. Life would be protected by taking life. So, maybe you're wondering at this point, well, why was life viewed as so important? So vital that war would be permitted to protect it. Well, we need to step back from Exodus 1 book to Genesis. 
For it's there that we discover the foundations of this particular command. So let's turn to Genesis 1 for a moment. Of course, if you don't believe in God and you think that life is an accident, then it's hard to make a principled stand against bumping someone off. And if we're mere animals, we can't expect any more or any less than dog-eat-dog behavior, can we? But if we believe the Bible, it's a different story. And in Genesis 1, verse 1, we see that in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. There's another perspective. God is the creator of the universe in all its parts. He is the life giver. And therefore, God has authority over all life. And included within that, as we see from Genesis 1, verse 27 now, is the human race. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God didn't just make a universe, he made us. And he fashioned us, did you notice? He created us in his own image. Meaning that in some way, however it's constituted, we bear the divine stamp. We resemble God in a special manner. Which is why the taking of life is such a serious thing. So, Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6 tells us this. God is speaking this time. From each man, I will surely demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. We say why. For, because, in the image of God... Has God made man? There's why. In Britain, it used to be a criminal offence to deface a coin. Because the coin had the Queen's image on it. And when you deface the coin, you defame the Queen. And friends, when life is taken capriciously or cheaply, it's like stamping all over the image of God itself. Therefore, it is a serious, serious matter. Now, there are numerous contemporary issues, or should I say, hot potatoes, to which this clearly applies. It it must be said that this relates to the issue of suicide. The over 600 cases of self-murder in Scotland every year. And also to self-harm. Over 1,400 reported cases. This point applies to euthanasia. So that wherever we draw the lines, they must be biblical lines. So that we must have the courage to stand up and say that every life is made by God and in the image of God. And therefore, life and death is not ours to simply choose. Or what about abortion? Came across a really sad thing on the internet this week. It was a web poll. You know, one of these things that asks for your vote, your opinion. And it related to the abortion story on the news this week. 
is what it said. A mother is challenging guidelines which say that girls under 16 can have abortions without their parents' consent. So the poll asked, is this just a basic right to privacy or are girls under 16 too young to make such a decision? Do parents have the right to know? And I thought to myself, what about the baby's right? And even more pertinently, what about God's right? Now, I'm aware that these are sensitive issues and there is a lot of pain which often surrounds them. And I also want to stress that God's forgiveness, of course, extends to all these areas. But we must be committed to speaking up for the sanctity of life. Now, maybe at this point you're thinking, well, I basically uh, agree with you. Uh, but maybe you're feeling rather comfortable because you're thinking to yourself, well, I've never murdered anyone and I'm certainly not planning to. Uh, so maybe this command really doesn't apply to me at all. However, there is a second note of caution that most definitely applies to each and every one of us. It is closer to home and it is closer to heart. Namely, that anger is serious. A couple of years ago, my wife and I were heading on holiday in the car and uh, we watched on with amazement as a particular car driver and another lorry driver engaged in the fiercest road rage incident we'd ever witnessed. The whole scuffle lasted for about 20 minutes as they chased each other up this particular A-road, waving fists, shouting things. And at the point where the car driver actually got out of his car to physically run after the moving lorry, it was almost verging on faintly amusing. But here's what's not so funny. A lady who last week was sentenced to four years for manslaughter, having kicked to death an elderly woman for apparently taking her parking space. Sounds ridiculous, but it's the real world and the real power of unbridled anger. And therefore, as we move to the New Testament now, Jesus calls on us to take anger seriously. He says, when it comes to the matter of murder, anger is the heart of the matter. So that in Matthew chapter 5 now, verse 21 and following, Jesus expounds and extends the scope of the sixth commandment. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and that anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. That is just Exodus 20 verse 13. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, notice the shift in emphasis. First, from the outward to the inward. You see, the teachers of the law in Jesus' day thought that you could keep the sixth commandment merely by avoiding the external act. So they said, I've not murdered anyone this week. I've not broken the sixth command. But no, says Jesus, there is more to be considered than that. And so he moves from the murderous act to the murderous attitude and to the unrighteous anger, if we could call it that, 
that is so often expressed in human relationships. Now, a little caveat here. This does not mean to say that Jesus is outlawing anger in all situations. We have to notice especially, particularly, the relationship context that Jesus is speaking of here. And remember, too, that we are directed in the Bible to hate what is evil as well as to love what is good. Nevertheless, as fallen, sinful human beings, we are constantly reminded in the Bible to be exceedingly careful in our expressions of anger. I think it was Aristotle who once said, anyone can be angry, that is easy. But to be angry with the right person, to the right degree, at the right time, for the right purposes, and in the right way, that is not easy. Which is why Jesus says, be on your guard. Watch out for those murderous thoughts, which so often boil over into abusive comments. Now, there's something lost in translation a little here, because raka and you fool are not among the top ten insults in Edinburgh today. I'm rather pleased about that, since I don't have to quote them and insult you with them. But we need to know that in Jesus' day, they were extremely offensive. Raka was an insult to a person's intelligence. It meant stupid, basically. It could probably be translated along the lines of you blockhead or you numbskull. But it was most serious because it meant, in effect, I wish you were dead. Or as people might say, drop dead. Well, you fool, on the other hand, wasn't much more endearing. This was an assault on the person's character. It meant something like, you crook, or you scoundrel. And such malicious anger, expressed in offensive language, is tantamount to murder. Jesus says, it's murder in the making. It's hidden homicide. And therefore, we should take it seriously. And not just say, oh, it's my temper. Just lose it from time to time. So let me ask you this morning, as pointedly as possible then. Have you murdered anyone recently? Murdered a reputation? By gossip? Or malicious talk? Have you ever thought to yourself, I wish that person were dead? Ever left a board meeting and thought, I hope I never see him or her again? Ever used unhelpful language? Perhaps even about your own spouse or your children. I'm going to kill him. Why do we say that? I'm going to to kill him. I'll wring his neck. Oh, we were just joking. But Jesus says, listen. Your language reveals something about the condition of your heart, about the condition of the human heart. The murderous steps that if left unchecked will lead to untold consequences. Not just physical judgment before the Sanhedrin, that is the court of man, but also spiritual judgment in danger of the fire of hell meeting the indictment of God himself. And maybe we say, I never thought anger was so serious. Well, now we know. And presuming that none of us are perfect in this area, what are we going to do about it? Well, before you start signing up 
for the latest anger management course, full of secular ideas, let us come to the Bible, which has lots to say concerning anger management. And I want to just pick up a couple of practicals before we finish. These will be brief, but there's something to go away with and ponder and hopefully apply. And the first is found in Matthew chapter 5 again, where Jesus goes on to give two examples of what we could call rapid resolution. Two stories with a degree of contrast. You see, one relates to the church and to a brother in Christ, and the other relates to a courtroom and an enemy. Two different settings, two different sets of people involved. Nevertheless, if we look at the two stories closely, we notice that their basic point is really the same. Sort things out quickly before things get out of hand. In the first instance, don't sit praying in the church, pious before the start of the service, when you know that that person isn't coming this morning because of something you said. Get out of that pew. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Or in the case of that person taking you to court, angry about some aspect of business, sort it out fast. Settle matters quickly with your adversary. Do it while you're still with him on the way. It's the same advice, remember, that Paul shared with the Ephesian church. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. So let me ask you this morning, are there some of us here today who shouldn't be? Understand that in the right sense, all things being equal, it's great that you're at church. But are you here when you maybe should be there, sorting out that problem with that person? And if that's you, you'll know what I mean. If so, don't wait around. Service will be done in a couple of minutes. There's a second bit of advice now from the Apostle James. And this advice concerns controlled communication. Controlled communication. You see, if we are to tame our anger, some of us must first learn to tame our tongues. This is what James says. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. What great advice. But how often do we do just the opposite when we're angry? We open our mouths loudly and we shut our ears, which otherwise might have given us some perspective and helped us cool off. Some of us need to perhaps learn a third and final area, and that is define deference. You see, there is an ultimate reason why we should be careful of being angry at other people. Namely, we're not God. Paul, writing to the Christians in Rome, said this, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And some of us perhaps need to just let God do his job. Stop being mad at this person and angry at that person. And yes, by the way, there's a place for going to someone whom we have a problem with who has offended us. 
But I'm talking about a general argumentativeness. We're just angry people. May Charlotte Chapel never be known as a church with a temper. Now, just a few words in conclusion. We've talked quite a bit about murder this morning. And I want to finish with a murder mystery. And it's the biggest crime conundrum in all of history. It concerns the person of Jesus, God's Son. I wonder if you've ever tried to solve it. Ever come up with a solution? The question is, who murdered Jesus? If you saw Mel Gibson's controversial film, The Passion of the Christ, about a year, year and a half ago, you'll remember the storm that surrounded the film. And the big debate concerned who was responsible for the death of Jesus. Who murdered Jesus? Some claimed that the film was anti-Semitic because in their view, it seemed to point to Jewish culpability. Others said, no, the Romans are equally shown as guilty. Interestingly, Gibson himself took a different slant. And on the only occasion where he played a part in the film... As you watch the nails being driven into the hands of Jesus, the soldier's hand you see bearing the hammer is Mel Gibson's. You see, he wanted to show that in some way he was responsible. That we, all of us, were responsible. Jesus didn't die accidentally. He was crucified by men, but he was crucified according to the plan of God. Crucified to pay the price for your sin and for mine. He was murdered so that the murder that we harbor in our hearts could be forgiven. And therefore this morning, each one of us must cast ourselves on him and the forgiveness available through his death for us. Not simply seek to reform ourselves. Get a little bit better with her temper. One writer astutely comments about all the commandments. He says, the law is not a ladder up which we climb, but a mirror in which we see our need for a saviour. So, have you seen murder in the mirror recently? Have you seen some ugly things in your own heart? Why not come to the cross today? The mystery's been solved. Jesus died because of you, but he died for you. And in faith and repentance this morning, you can find, we all can find, mercy for murder. Let's pray.